Good morning. morning. It's great to know that we are loved by a Savior. Amen? Amen. It's great to know that we can love Him. Oftentimes in the church, I think we gather together and we talk about all the things we ought to do and all the things we ought to be. And in reality, when we get together for worship, it ought to also just be a time when we let the Lord know how much we love Him and how much we are appreciative of the fact that He loves us. And I appreciate all of those who lead us in music every week and allow us to do that. Allow us just to let him know, thank you for loving us, and we love you as well. How many of you all learned at an early age to deal with conflict? Anybody? Yeah, raise your hand again. I have my back turned. Anybody? Yeah, yeah there you go. <clears throat> I have been an expert at conflict since I was young. Started in ninth grade. I accidentally shot my tooth out with a BB gun. And uh, I have a fake tooth, one of those implants with a metal post in my, in my front of my mouth because I had my mouth open when I was shooting. And it ricocheted straight back and went through the root and the top and, and shattered my tooth. And quite an experience. And had to go to an emergency dentist appointment on a Saturday and go through all of these different visits to get all the implant done. And not too long after that, I was playing football. And there was this guy that played in, in my eighth grade football team. He had a full beard. I think he was like 34 years old. <laughs> Not sure. He, he was tall, big guy. And I was always a pretty big guy myself. And he was getting a little mouthy on the football field. And we were walking into the locker room. And I looked at him and I said, if you don't shut up, I'm going to. And the next thing I remember is I'm laying on the ground. <laughs> and I looked at him. And this is how I learned to deal with conflict. This, this was brilliant. I looked at him and said, if you broke my $500 tooth, my mom's going to be mad. <laughs> a brilliant response as I laid on the ground and watched him walk away. Reality is conflict is, ev- is an everyday part of our life, isn't it? And it is a part of our church life as well. Because how many of you in here are human this morning? Raise your hand. About 80% of you. The other 20, not sure, right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. For allowing us, Father, to be able to live graciously because of your grace. For allowing us to be people who can love because of your love. And Lord, we also thank you for the conflict in our life. That which has taught us so many valuable lessons about ourselves, about you, about others. Some of that conflict, Lord, has really torn us right down to the very soul of who we are. There are people who are sitting here today who are still hurt over that conflict. Still, it's a part of their thoughts every single day. And I pray that today they will be released from that, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, forgiveness will happen. There are others, Lord, who have learned from that conflict, and we are where we are, and we're thankful that you've grown us through it. Today, Lord, help us to understand how to deal with conflict in a healthy way. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. We had a satellite campus at South Parkersburg Baptist Church in Mason County, West Virginia, in the Point Pleasant area. And I used to go down there every Sunday for about two years, and, and as we did evening services, and then we began to transition to morning services. And, and I would often ride my motorcycle. I have a Harley Davidson that I love to get out on and ride. And this would be a great opportunity for me on a Sunday afternoon in the summer to, to ride about an hour down and then ride about an hour back. And oftentimes when I went down after we transitioned to Sunday morning, I would 
go down for afternoon meetings and have to be back in Parkersburg for an evening meeting or church service at 6 or 7 o'clock. And, and so I would simply wear what I was going to wear to the meeting or to preach at, at South and, and uh, just get on my motorcycle and ride. And one time I was coming back from, from Mason County and, and I was in Ohio coming down Route 7 and I got behind a, a horse trailer. And, and if you're on a Harley, you know you can't, you have to pass things like that. You just can't ride under the speed limit when you're riding a Harley-Davidson. And, and so to pass on this particular road, I had to get up close enough that I could see around and take my opportunity. And I'm riding, and I had a pair of khaki pants on, a little bit lighter than what I have on the day. And all of a sudden, I see something fly out of the back of the horse trailer. And I feel it, warm and moist, land on my leg. And it bounces off, and I look down, and I have this great big brown spot on my pants. I, I literally laughed so hard, I almost had to pull over, because I thought, this is really funny, and I'm going to be able to use it in tons of sermons in the future, because it's great, you know. I got back, I washed it out as best I could, but it's been a story that I've shared over and over and over again. And a point I want to make is this, is sometimes when we're gone from where we are to where we need to be, it gets messy. <laughs> no doubt. And it's exactly something that Nehemiah teaches us. We've been looking at Nehemiah in the last couple of weeks, and, and what we're going to look at today is this, and, and that is conflict. Conflict is a normal part of life. And, and as we talk about being renewed as a church, and we talk about being renewed personally, and, and we talk about where you all are heading in your kind of new journey as you're seeking a new pastor to lead you here at the church, and, and all the excitement for what God has done in the past, and all the excitement for what God is going to do in the future, you need to understand that conflict is just a very normal part of life. And you need to also understand that even though it gets messy sometimes, a lot of times the mess is caused because all of us have our own kind of mechanisms to how we respond to conflict. You know what yours are if you really think about them. If you're really honest with yourself and take a little bit of self-inventory, you know how you respond to conflict in your life. I remember the story of this wise sage, and there was a couple of guys in the, in the village that were having this huge conflict, and he agreed to see them one at a time. The first one came in and told his side of the story, and, and, and the wise sage, after hearing everything that the guy had to say, looked at him and said, you're absolutely right. And the man walked away happy, and the next guy came in. He shared his side of the story and, and all of the reasons why he thought he was right. And, and when he was done, the wise sage looked at him and said, You are absolutely right. His wife was in the other room, and she came in, and she said, What's wrong with you? You can't tell both of them that they're absolutely right. You're not wise. Everybody thinks you are, but you're not really that wise. And he looks at her, and he says, What? You're absolutely right. <laughs> Some of you respond to conflict in that way. Just whatever pleases the person who's talking to you at the time because you want to get out of the room. You want to make sure that you don't have to really deal with the conflict. And then there's some others of you in the room who don't respond that way. As a matter of fact, when anybody wrongs you, you're ready for a good fight. You'll go down with the ship. You'll do whatever it takes to win the argument. Today, we need to talk a little bit about what Nehemiah has to teach us about how to deal with conflict in a healthy way, and it's neither fleeing the conflict nor fighting all the time either. If you want to review with me just for a minute what we've looked at in the last two weeks, <clears throat> what we've seen is that Nehemiah is over in the citadel of Susa, and he is kind of going through his normal routine of life. He is in slavery, captivity as an Israelite, but 
but he's got a pretty good position being a slave, and he's cupbearer to the king. And if you remember the first week, we talked about the fact that his, his picture was widened. He, he began to see the big picture when there were visitors from Jerusalem came, and he asked that question, how are the people of Israel? And he was told that they were in distress and that the walls were, were broken down. And, and he is moved to tears and compassion. He weeps and he prays and he does something. He follows God's will and he goes to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And we looked last week at the fact that when he got there, he had to get everyone to do the work together. That to really be the people God wants us to be, not only do we need to see the big picture and be moved to do something about the needs out there, but we need to do it together. That teamwork really does work. And today what I want to talk to you about and what I think Nehemiah shares with us is this. It is conflict is inevitable when we do the work of God. Now, now listen to that because I believe this to be true after my years of, of experience in ministry. It is not likely when you do the word of God, work of God. It is not possible when you do the work of God. It is inevitable when you do the work of God that conflict will arise. I want to take you through quite a bit of scripture in Nehemiah. If you want to read along, we're going to start in chapter 2, then we're going to go over to chapter 4, <clears throat> excuse me, and then we're going to finish up in chapter 6. We're going to start in chapter 2 and verse 19 and 20. And what I want you to see is kind of how all this conflict happens and how it kind of escalates as they begin the work that God has called them to, and then as they begin to be successful in the work that God has called them to, how the conflict heightens and becomes more serious. Look starting in <clears throat> excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying the God of heaven will give us success. We his servants will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, if you progress in the work down to Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, you see this. <clears throat> when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said what they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. You always have to have someone standing beside the one causing conflict, don't you? Kind of echoing what that person said, and that's what Tobiah is doing. Verse 4, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads, Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we did what? Rebuilt the wall uh, until it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. As our enemies said, 
before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. It's getting more serious, isn't it? Now, even the workers are getting disheartened. Even the workers are listening to the insults and the threats that are coming. Fast forward to Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. You got the same, I always like to call these like WWF guys. Their names sound WWF, Sanballat, Tobiah, I don't know, and Geshem. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, and he goes through this whole thing, and the whole point of the next three or four or five verses there is this. Now they are so incensed, the work is almost complete, that now they're out and out just trying to kill him. They're out and out just trying to absolutely annihilate um, Nehemiah. In a book that is used widely amongst pastors, it's called Leading Congregational Change by Jim Harrington, Mike Bonham, and James Furr. They say this, this is a quote, they've studied a bunch of churches in conflict and a bunch of churches who are doing great ministry in the conflict that has resulted. And this is their quote from their book. It says, over time and with hundreds of conversations, we came to recognize that change does not happen without conflict. As we reviewed the biblical patterns every time, without exception, the people of God began to make adjustments to join God in his activity. Conflict emerged. Every time, listen to it, every time the people of God began to make adjustments to join God in his activity, conflict emerged. Now, if you look where we've come so far in this whole story of Nehemiah, as a church and as individuals, we have this calling to move, this calling to change, this calling to go from where we are to where God wants us to be. And that's for every one of you who know him as Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, he's calling you to move as well, to make that decision and, and to receive him and confess him as Lord in your life. But to every one of us, we are where we are today, and God has somewhere he wants us to go. It may be a great big step, it may be a really little step, but for every one of us, he doesn't want us to stay the same. He wants us to move, he wants us to change, he wants us to mature, to be renewed, to be revived. All of that different language as a church and as individuals. But here's the thing, when we move, it causes friction. Movement causes friction. Matter of fact, the only way you don't have friction physically is to what? Not move. And there are a lot of Christians who aren't moving. And there are a lot of churches who aren't moving. And I love the churches that say to me, you know what, we haven't had a conflict in 35 years. And I'm like, praise God, you know. And I walk away. And in my mind, this is what I'm thinking. They haven't done a daggone thing worthwhile in 35 years. You know what? Now, if they say we've had a lot of conflict, but we've handled it well, God has blessed us in the midst of it, and people haven't been run over and destroyed because of it. I'm like, well, awesome, because that's real life. Having conflict that we handle in a godly way means that we're doing something and we're doing it right. 
So our call really is to do this. It is to surrender. Surrender our wants. Surrender our needs. Surrender our, des our desires. And trust God. Trust his work. Trust his activity. And when the conflict comes, understand how to handle it in a godly, healthy way. Now that book, Leading Congregational Change, that I, that I referred to earlier, says that conflict comes in kind of two different ways. And I think this is very much supported biblically. Not only in the story of Nehemiah, but in many other stories of conflict that happen in the scriptures. First of all, what they say is conflict can be life-threatening. A quote from the book says this, Life-threatening conflict happens when people lose sight of the vision to which God has called them. Do you, you remember the Israelites in the Exodus? You remember when they're all following the leaders out of the promise, out of the captivity in Egypt, and they're heading to the promised land, right? And, and what's driving them to go? It is a vision. It, it, it is a vision. It is a picture in their head of what the promised land is going to be like when they get there. It's a picture of what life is going to be. The land of milk and honey. Our homeland. We're going to get there. And they're so excited and they're moving. But after a while, and things don't go exactly the way they want, they say what? We would be better off had we stayed back there in Egypt, right? We would be better off had we stayed back there in captivity. Now what's happened here? Has the promised land changed? Has God's call changed? No. A little bit of conflict has caused his people to lose sight of the vision. And when they lose sight of the vision, then conflict starts. You start picking at each other. Remember last week I shared the Max Lucado story of the boys who were meant to fish and people who are meant to fish when they don't fish they fight. That's exactly what happens. And, and so conflict can be life-threatening when we lose sight of what God has called us to. When we begin to think that the building is somehow the vision. When we begin to think that the pastor is somehow the vision. When we begin to think that what I want in worship is somehow the vision, rather than how is God going to use us to change this community in His name, for His sake, and for His glory. And when we lose sight of that, conflict becomes life-threatening because life-threatening conflict is defined by one word. It is selfishness. We begin to turn from the vision to what we want and what we desire and what we like. We, become, we turn from our calling to be a difference in the community to a kind of a consumer mentality in the church. When I played football in high school, we had a guy that was really good. He was so good that he told the coach what he was going to do. And the coach was scared to death to coach him. He was afraid he was going to quit because we really needed him on the team. And he had a favorite play that he would run. Even if the coach said, you're going to run this play, he would come in the huddle and say, we're running this play. They would run that play, and it hardly ever worked. And the mentality simply was this. I like the play. I don't care if it works. I like to run the play. Now, I know that sounds absolutely idiotic, right? You guys, Steeler fans, you get to watch them again today, right? Huh? <laughs> And, and, and you, you, don't, you don't want some player on the team, some running back, going in and saying, hey, you know what, I know this never works hardly, but I really like this play. Let's try this two or three times, right? You would say that's idiotic, but we do that in the church all the time. Well, how many people came to the Lord as a result of that? Well, not very many, but I just really like it that way. Oh, how many people grew in their faith because of that thing you're doing? Well, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but, but we like that. You know, we like it that way. 
Well, the thing is, is that we're here in this world, and God's going to give us all kinds of things we like, and all kinds of things that brings us joy, amen? Come on, you can amen that. God gives us things we like. But that's not what it's about. It's about what his calling is for us to do. What his calling is for us to become. There are a whole lot of things about the church that I pastored in the South I didn't like. But it worked to do what God was calling us to do. And so I did it. I did it because it's not about me and it's not about you. Life-threatening conflict is defined by selfishness. <clears throat> Life-threatening conflict progresses from opposition to ideas to personal assaults. You see that in Nehemiah? Watch what happens. First of all, they oppose the project. They say, what are they going to do? Are they going to rebuild this wall? Ha, 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 ha. Right? Well, if they rebuild that wall, it won't be any good. I mean, even if a fox jumps up on it, it's going to fall down. So they opposed the project, the issue. They made fun of the workers, and they became bitter. And then when it started to happen, they attacked them personally, even to the point of wanting to kill them. And what did Nehemiah do in the midst of that? He prayed, and he worked. And he didn't let them control the agenda. Here's what happens in the church today. Way too often, we let those who say it can't be done, those who say we won't let it be done, those who try to make sure it's not done, control the agenda. Here's my philosophy. Maybe completely, this is not scriptural, this is Ed Rogers. So don't write this down, okay? My, my philosophy is this. The old 80-20 rule in the church, right? They say that like 20% of the people in the church work to do the work so 80% of the people can kind of enjoy the ride. I believe it's a little bit different. I believe you have about 10 or 15% of the church over here on this side. And no matter what the pastor does or the leadership does, they're behind it. Because that's just who they are. The pastor could get up and say, look, we're going to cancel church for the next six months. You know, and we're going to go out and, and, and walk our dogs on Sunday morning. And they'd be like, what a great idea, preacher. You know, that's what we're going to do. There's really no thought behind it. If the preacher says it or the leadership says it, we're going to do it. There's no thought behind it, no discernment behind it. And then over here, you got the same kind of size group of people. And they're like, it doesn't matter what the leadership says we ought to do. I ain't going to go along with anything. I was in the same church for 26 years. I'm not really that old. 51, but I was in the same church for 26 years. And I could tell you to the T, every single business meeting, who's voting no. It didn't matter what we were voting on. If it was new, I could give you a list of who was going to vote no. The new pastor called me one day about six months into the ministry. He said, I got this horrible letter. He said, they said this, 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 and this. And I said, oh, how is so-and-so doing? He said, how did you know that's who that was? <laughs> I got that same letter like every year for 25 years. <laughs> right? And, and so you got these groups here and here. And you got all these other people in the middle. Whose fault is it that the vision of the church gets hijacked by either one? Whose fault is it that leadership is going astray and not being held accountable? Or there's a group in the church that keeps the church from doing what God wants done? It's these people right here who flee conflict and say this, quote unquote, over and over again, I just don't want to cause problems. <clears throat> Somebody please. I've heard it so much in the church. Would somebody please show me the scripture that that comes from? I just don't want to cause problems. I just want to stand over here in the corner. 
and kind of let everything unfold. You're the church. What has God called you to do? It's these people here that are really trying to do what God wants, discerning what God wants, that need to really honestly say, you know what? We need to move forward. Life-threatening conflict when it happens. This group needs to say, no, 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 no. We love you, both groups. But we're going to move forward with what God wants us to do in a godly way. Life-threatening conflict also, before I leave it, attacks in stealth mode. It's very seldom something that is up front. It's behind the doors. It's a mumbling that spreads. In John 3, 19 through 21, the Lord kind of deals with this a little bit. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. If someone needs to say something in secret or they need to do something in secret, you need to really be cautious of what they're saying and doing. If I'm not willing to let you know what my opinion is, it's probably not a very godly opinion. If I'm not willing to let you see what I'm doing, it's probably not a very godly activity. And so you've got to be really careful about the people who call you on the phone and say, I didn't say anything in a business meeting. I didn't say anything in the meeting at church, but let me tell you what I really think. No, let me tell you what. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. But the next business meeting, you need to stand up and say what you think. And people will listen. But it's not the way to deal with it. I know some of you are like, oh, man, you know, I like this Christmas series. This one, not so much. <laughs> but this is the truth. This is the truth as we move from where God wants us to be to where, or where we are to where God wants us to be. I was golfing one day. I was golfing with a saint, a, a guy who loves the Lord. Good guy, usually, mostly, like all of us. We're not good all the time. He got out of the golf cart and he looked at me and he said, Preacher, i got to tell you something. And I was like, oh, great. This is why I got called to golf today. He said, I got to tell you what they're saying. <clears throat> I never did meet these people in the church 26 years. I never met them, but they always said stuff. <clears throat> and he said, what they're saying is this. They're saying the church only cares about the young people. The church doesn't care about the elderly. And I said, really? What are, what, are, what are they basing that on? Well, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing this, that. I came back with, yeah, but you know, we spend more money on our pastor of senior adults and there's more activities for senior adults and every single thing that everybody had when I came here, Wednesday night Bible study, traditional service, Sunday night service, all that's still here. We just added a lot of stuff for young people who don't know Jesus and trying to reach those people. Yeah, yeah, but here's the thing. I just need to let you know, if you don't quit trying to get the young people in the church, these people are going to quit giving. And he said, if they quit giving, preacher, you can't pay the bills. I said, I know, that's awesome stuff, isn't it? He just looked at me. I said, let me tell you what I'll do. I appreciate you sharing that with me. I said, I'm going to go back to church today. I'm going to do everything I can to keep reaching young people who don't know Jesus and who aren't in church. And I said, when they stop giving and they take the church away because of it, I'll be the first one standing out front with the keys. I'll hand them over to the bank and I'll go home and sleep like a baby because I did what God wanted, not what they wanted. And you can go tell them that's what I said. To which he replied, well, it's not really a lot of people. It's just a few. And you know what that's like, right? And I'm not trying to say that I'm some great person. I've dealt with conflict in a horrible way and a lot of times and paid the price for it in my life. But there are just some times, church, 
when we need to stand up for what's right and say no more of this selfishness, no more of this life-threatening conflict that lurks around the corner and doesn't deal with things up front, although you can get free golf out of it every now and then. Now, there's conflict also. This is the good news. The good news is conflict is not always life-threatening. And, and that's the thing I think that all of us as Christians sometimes don't really understand. Conflict really can be life-giving. If I can quote that book one more time, which I think, again, is backed up by Nehemiah and backed up by many other scriptures, they say life-giving conflict is a deeper understanding and commitment that grows out of a significant disagreement. Raise your hand if you have ever had a disagreement with someone and came out of that doing something better than you did it before because you learned something through the conflict. Anybody? You're mature people, quite frankly. Because it's exactly what ought to happen in all of our conflict. In our families, in our community, in our world, we have forgotten how to handle conflict in our country. We don't know how to handle it anymore. We're being taught that you've got to side up with one side or the other and then scream and yell and holler. And I'm not picking on one party or one person or anybody. I'm saying it's across the board. It's hard to stand in the middle anymore and say, hey, let's talk about this and have a reasonable uh, uh, solution to this issue that we disagree on because we see all over the place that you have to be way over here, way over here, and arguing and fighting and hollering across to each other. But life-giving conflict is something that moves us to come together. Look at Acts chapter 6 for just a minute. This is the early church. You all are familiar with this passage, a lot of you. This is going a little longer than usual. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now this is the, the, the early disciples, right? And, and there's conflict arising. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal did what? It pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now what I want you to see here is a couple of things. First of all, the disciples were not deterred from the vision because there was conflict. But they also didn't ignore the conflict. They worked it out with a compromise. And as a result of what they did, look at the last verse of that passage. What happened? People came to know Christ at a rapid rate. Let me tell you something. The church ought to be the place where the world's looking at on how we deal with conflict. People out there ought to be coming to Christ in hordes because they look at us and they go, you know what? They had something going on in that church that could have blown them wide apart, but they love each other so much that they worked it out. I want to know what they got that I don't have. People ought not be going to lawyers to figure out how to deal with conflict. They ought not have to be going to their friends and neighbors. The first place they ought to come is to the church. But you tell me, you know the church. You know the churches in your life. Are we that beacon on a hill on how to deal with conflict? Or are we showing the world that we're worse than the rest? I think in my experience, we've got some really good Christian people and some really good churches. You're one of them. But you know, as a whole, we're not doing a very good job. 
we're not doing a very good job of engaging in life-giving conflict. So how do we engage in it? I can't stop, even though I'm out of time, until I tell you this part. First of all, we have to, if we want to make it life-giving, we have to engage the conflict with humility. <clears throat> Max Lucado, in another one of his books, talks about getting a dog. I don't know if you all read Max Lucado, but he just has some great stories. And he talks about this dog, and, and, and he talks about how excited he was to get this dog as a kid. You all have kids that all wanted pets, and you ended up feeding it and taking it out every day after about a week, right? And he says this. He, he says, when he stopped wanting to feed the dog, and he stopped wanting to take care of the dog, his mom and dad basically said to him, this is your dog. And listen to what he says. I didn't like hearing those words, your dog. I wouldn't have minded the phrase, your dog to play with, or your dog when you want her, or even your dog when she is behaving, but those weren't my parents' words. They said, Liz is your dog, period. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, and dryness and in wetness, that's when it occurred to me, I am stuck with Liz. The courtship was over and the honeymoon had ended. We were mutually leashed. Liz went from an option to an obligation, from a pet to a chore, from someone to play with to someone to care for. You know, Paul says in a beautiful passage of Scripture when he's talking about the body of Christ, we belong to one another. Look to the person beside of you, the one you're not married to, and say, I belong to you. Right? Yeah. Uh -huh. If we remembered that, we would have a lot less conflict that's life-threatening. And we would say when we're in conflict with our brother and sister, hey, sister, you belong to me. And I'm not going to go to another church to get rid of you or push you out to get rid of you. I'm going to figure out how we're going to work together on this. We'll figure out how we're going to move forward on this. I'm going to do all I can to make this work because I belong to you and you belong to me. We have to engage one another and godly love. And I don't mean that kind of love that we talk about. I mean godly love. Anybody in here a hugger? Huh? If you're a hugger, come up here. <laughs> come on. Come on. I, just, I just need one of you. I just need one. I just need one. I just need one. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that big a hugger. You stay right, no, stay right here. Right here, right here, right here, right here. Stand right there. Now, in the church, often we talk about how much we love one another, right? And we hug each other, and we say, how you doing? And we say, I'm doing great, you know, thanks, even though if our heart's completely breaking and we don't want to share it because, you know, in the church, we want people to know how messed up we are sometimes, right? And so we come, we say, hey, brother, I want to hug you. You know, give me a big old hug. Come on, give me a big old, wait a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Huh? Put that on. These things never fit my hand very well. Oop. Here we go. All right, let's just pretend it's on there. Get out of here. Give me a big hug. There you go. I love you, brother. Right? I love you. I love you. Is that the way Jesus embraced people? No. He said, look, you know what? I don't care if you got a cold this morning. 
You know what? I love you. You can sit down. I'll hug you again before I leave. The fact is, godly love is, I don't care how ugly you are. I don't care how nasty you've been. I don't even care how you've gossiped about me. I'm going to love you with the love of Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to flee conflict, but you're never going to think it's personal because I'm always going to make sure you know we disagree on some issues, but I love you. I mourn when you're not with me. I don't celebrate when you're not part of the church anymore. I mourn when you feel like you've got to go somewhere else. And when we move forward, if we deal with conflict in a way that is humble and loving, but we deal with it, it is amazing what we can get done. The walls get built. The world gets changed. And people out there go, wow, there's something really, really different about that group. Pray with me.